0: Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup. With great odds, great promos, and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gamblers' help, call 1 800 858 858. On 882 6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Hello once again, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Dabe doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. In this episode, we're joined by a former Australian diplomat, a former Deputy Prime Minister, an opposition leader in a rich career that spanned over 30 years in politics. We welcome Mr. Kim Beasley. Great to be with you, Tim. Thank you very much for I'm joining us. I'm very
2: flattered to be with you. I have to say, it's and a... <laughs> of course, your name's been in
1: the headlines a little bit lately because you've been uh, hotly tipped as uh, as Western Australia's next governor. Um, is there any 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 scoop you can give us? Absolutely. At this moment, not. In this time? this is a
2: matter entirely <laughs> in the hands of the West Australian government, and I have nothing to say on it. No.
1: <laughs> I might try to trip you up a little <laughs> bit later on that, but uh, look, let's go right back uh, to the the very beginning. Uh, you're a born and bred. Perth man, what are you, some of your early memories of Perth? Because if, I, if I'm right, you were, you were part of that post-World War Two baby boom.
2: Absolutely. I am a baby boomer, and it's appalling that I'm 69 years old. And <laughs> we baby boomers consider ourselves youngsters. Of course. Uh, permanently in life, really, and, the, and a dominating cohort as it's moved through uh, Australian social and political life. Uh, Hard to say, earliest memories, we we started off, Dad had rental accommodation in Nedlands because Nedlands, oddly enough, then was part of Fremantle, the constituency that he he represented. And I have just vague memories of a hammock in the backyard and of sitting down watching the chap who was cutting the lawn. And apparently my mother used to say that uh, when I started to speak, I spoke in sentences and she'd, she'd get an enormous supply, surprise because I'd be lying on my back, oh, you know, toddling by the time you're, you're starting to speak, and I'd say, wind blow curtain, Benny cut lawn. Now, that's not, <laughs> that's not part of my memory. That, that was her memory of me. My memory is uh, very, very vague. I think really the earliest substantial memory I have is when I got polio. Mm, at and, the age of six. And that's right. Uh, might have been even younger. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm conscious of not being able to move and being carried out in a, a, uh, a stretcher to an ambulance. And all the kids from the district, they've never seen an ambulance around the, the area I lived before. <laughs> Just these stacks of kids all around the ambulances I went in. And then they put me in this little brown uniform at um, uh, over in uh, 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 back at Claremont where they had uh, Greylands, where they had a, a sort of um, sanctuary, if you like, for polio sufferers. I didn't get it bad because I could move. Mm. And, and I just remember running around, but talking to very brave adults, actually, in iron lungs and that sort of thing. So... Those are really the sort of er- very earliest mm. memories that I have.
1: Did it did it impact your childhood much at all, contracting polio? It's oh, it certainly
2: did. Um, my uh, unsolicited, Don Bradman, wrote to my old man, and uh, his son had had polio and later right. became Hurdle's champion of uh, South, South Australia. But he devised a series of exercises uh, for his boy, and one of them was you... He- you put out a towel and you crunched it up in your toes. So um, you, you try it.
3: Mm, uh, it.
2: It's actually quite hard. It sounds hard, but it, it did strengthen your uh, your calves, and um, it was, I think, probably quite important to me in my recovery. And um, but it, it it slowed me down mm. when I uh, went and uh, fell on the black ice and in. Uh, Uh, Washington, and snapped the patella tendon behind each of my knees, which was a pretty gross introduction. Uh, The orthopod said to me as I came out of surgery, he said, what have you done to yourself? And I explained that that I'd had polio because he'd just sewn together the tendon. He said, don't ever do this again. (laughs) He said, I had almost nothing to work with. Wow. So, uh, I was uh, keen on sports when I was a kid. My mother was a great sporting champion. She was. My sister was excellent as an athlete. Um, I was a bit of a plodder, and I suspect <laughs> I like to think that polio had something to do with You've that. got a not pretty just, good excuse just, there, not just I think. general incompetence.
1: <laughs> well, look, you uh, you chose then to follow in your father's footsteps uh, in many ways, didn't you? Because, uh, as you mentioned, the member for Fremantle. Um, it's pretty easy to see uh, where your political ambitions might have uh, come from then.
2: It was really the political, political values and political ideas. You know, Dad was away a lot as a Member of Parliament. Uh, really, Mum brought us up. But he'd be back, and then we'd have the the dinner and the lunch table. And my sister and brother and me would... It was like a sort of Gestapo grilling <laughs> whenever Dad came home, and and... He once said, I can remember him saying, I've got to eat. I can't keep answering questions. It's like I'm under an interrogation whenever I come home. And he was. And we just learned from him a truly awesome amount, but also the very high value he placed on public service.
1: Mm. Well, he was a member of the Whitlam government too. So you he was, have, yes, You would, you would have had a, had a, a few questions to, to throw at him, that's for sure. It was well, an interesting time.
2: It was three years, which he used to say made a 32 year career in politics worthwhile. Most of his career in politics was, you know, uh, not sad, but frustrating. Mm. It was, it was the, the coincided with the long period of Menzies and then subsequent Liberal rule.
1: Mm. Uh, just moving on to your uni days, you were, you were a Rhodes Scholar, you took off to the UK. Um, yeah. How did you find your time over there? Because I, I, and I want to ask you about Tony Blair in a minute.
2: Look, it was it was fascinating because uh, whereas my whole life at UWA had been bound up with politics, with student politics, with academic uh, you know uh, groups that uh, encouraged the, the way in which you thought in as you're doing your degree, and there was real student activity on campus in those days compared mm. with now. Yep. Um, When I went to Oxford, I absolutely dropped all of that, all of it. Played a bit of cricket, played a bit of rugby for the college, but uh, aside from that, all I did was study. Yeah. And it was wonderful Mm. because I didn't feel any sense of responsibility for British politics. Just being in a bubble. I don't need to get there and don't need to join the British Labor Party, don't need to do any (laughs) of that sort of stuff. i just concentrate on... uh, on academics, and that uh, UWA was good, but the time at Oxford was, in terms of forming the way in which you thought, mm. uh, was far more significant.
1: Tony Blair became a, a friend of yours over there. What was he like in his early days? Was he a well bit of a rascal?
2: He not a rascal. Tony? Not a rascal, but politically he was conservative, and his main interest in uh, other activities was managing a rock band. Is that right, And, and being in it, he, was, he, he I was at Balliol College, St. Yeah. John's College, where he was, was next to us, and Jeff Gallup was at St. John's, who yep. got there a year before me, and, and I was in Balliol. Tony Blair was a really close friend of Jeff. Jeff in those days was a Trotskyite, and I, so I can't quite understand the dynamic of this, <laughs> but what Jeff did was convert him to labor politics. Wow. And uh, Jeff, when he'd been in in Western Australia, had been president of the Liberal Club at UWA, so somehow or other he made this massive intellectual transition uh, when he was at uh, in England, and um, and uh, so I guess Tony then, being conservative, sort of went halfway in a sense. Um, but um, I met him once or twice in Jeff's rooms, but I, I can't say. He was a great mate. He became more of a friend. Uh, when I got elected to Parliament and you'd travel every now and then to England and you'd always look him up. He mm. was, uh, he was a, a lawyer with a bar practice in, in London, so he was down at the temp, around the Temple Inn and that, that sort of area, which is a fabulous area in its own right. And mm. uh, So I saw a fair bit of the – and then a lot uh, when he went on to the Labor Party front bench and he and Gordon Brown would come to Australia.
1: So you've you've come back to Australia with this uh, this new knowledge and these changed political ideals perhaps um, how quickly then did you uh, did you move into Parliament
2: well looking back very quickly yeah uh, that's not what it felt like at the time I came back and I taught at Murdoch University uh, teaching basically international politics but also uh, some things a bit more broadly and uh, and I missed out the endorsement for Fremantle in '77, but I got the endorsement for Swan in '80. So all up, I was, you know, I was around for about four and a half years, I suppose, mm.
1: at uh, at Murdoch. That's a well. That's a pretty, pretty very rapid, a pretty quick time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you, you've been uh, described uh, in the past as as something of a protege of of Bob Hawke's. Uh, would you agree with that?
2: I think it grew. Um, when I uh, when we won government in eighty three, I'd only been in parliament for three years, and there were twenty four front benches then. And the government uh, had kept, or the opposition had kept its numbers down below the government levels of twenty seven. So there are three more places available uh, from the uh, twenty four, almost though not all actually, but almost all went into the ministry. So I was uh, picked for effectively for one of those places, and uh, and then became began a sort of ministerial career, starting off as minister for aviation, then stepping in when, when Mick Young had a few problems to doubling up as special minister of state, and uh, it was a, a terrific learning experience. Mm. Those, those portfolios they gave yeah. you everything really, but in minuscule. Uh, And then in eighty four I became Defence Minister. That, I think, is really when... I'd helped Bob become Labor Party leader, but so had lots of others. Uh, When I became Defence Minister, because Bob had such a heavy focus on national security and foreign policy, Mm. uh, that started the conversations. Um, We also shared a habit, which nobody else (laughs) in the Cabinet had, and that was cigars. Right. So Bob used to... uh, I was always the last guy that he'd see. I'd go up and see him at 12 <laughs> at night because the guy never slept. And he'd take out a cigar and I'd have one and it was great because you could then go. And I'm
1: sure and in those days you could probably just light up in your office and well, he a Well,
2: he was a um, – uh, he'd every now and then go on the wagon. So I'd go in there. He'd insist I smoke a cigar and then he started saying, how about a puff, you know. And I got a bit – sick of this exchange of bodily fluids. And uh, so I came in one day and he you know, offered the cigar box. I took two. I lit them both and I put one, both of them in my mouth and he said, you bastard. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he took the cigar cool. and uh, one of the cigars and the nonsense stopped.
1: He still <laughs> smokes his cigar uh, oh, most mornings, doesn't he, Bob? Oh, Doing he his does. crossword yeah. there out in the balcony.
2: Absolutely right. Uh, what about you? I smoke the odd cigar too, but not doing crosswords. I, say. I, I mean, one of the things that's been a joy really uh, since coming back is I've been able to do a bit of writing, albeit just for blogs and that yep. sort of thing, but that's been intellectually mm. pretty satisfying.
1: Mm. I want to ask you uh, some more about uh, the various portfolios you've held uh, over the years, but we'll have to go to a break uh, for the moment. So we'll get into that uh, right after this break. Kim Beasley is my special guest. This is WA's Inspiring
0: Stories right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. And welcome
1: back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Kim Beasley. Uh, Kim, you mentioned a couple of the portfolios that, uh, that you enjoyed over the years, uh, aviation and defence. But uh, look, that was, uh, that's a couple of, of many. Um, uh, there was transport, communications, uh, employment, education, training, finance. Have I missed any? <laughs> uh,
2: probably not. Vice president of the executive council, special minister of state. <laughs> there are
1: a few. Yeah, but Adam and the, the list. <laughs> Would I be right in guessing that defence w- was your favourite?
2: Look, that is absolutely the case because that that's where all my studies had been, particularly studies at Oxford, and and so you had a bit of a an excitement about it. it's the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, defence and foreign policy issues were far bigger on the uh, public focus tree. Um, then than they are now mm. they 're pretty big now, but nothing like then, so having the defence portfolio actually puts you at the center of things and and it 's really the the alliance component of our foreign policy is really more, most heavily managed from defence yeah so so that was terrific it 's also fitted with philosophies I had about national self reliance about building Australian industry about um, really being one of the few nations on earth that can actually defend itself. Mm. Most countries can't. Mm. We can't. We can do it because we have a relationship with the Americans.
1: Mm. Um, those turbulent years, the Hawke and Keating years, particularly uh, towards the end, um, what are you? What are your strong memories of that time? Because uh, being, I suppose, an ally of of, of Bob Hawke, mm. and then of course him losing the position to uh, to Paul Keating, it must have been an incredible time to to be in that that bubble at Parliament House in Canberra.
2: In the end, it destroyed any joy I had in politics. Is that right? Uh, duty uh, replaced joy, or duty exclusively replaced joy from that point on. I, as a young minister, I had uh, I'd appreciated all my colleagues. I understood their strengths. I would still argue it in, in non-war times. That was the best government the country's ever had. And um, it was depressing to see the, the fight between them effectively damaging. Mm. They were very professional, though, the pair of them. Uh, they never let that fight interrupt the proper conversation there should be between a prime mm. minister and a treasurer on the policy issues that they had to confront, and and that impressed me. But at the same time, the fight um, depressed me because you know they're both very good, mm. and if Just they'd been different. able to sustain uh, that um, uh, that relationship, then you know perhaps he would have governed for a long time.
1: Did that set the tone do you think for the leadership spills we've had uh, so often in the years since uh, the way that all transpired
2: no there've been a few before mm. I mean you saw uh, um, runs against Fraser you saw on the opposition side you know the never ending uh, peacock howard saga and so on um but I suppose it was probably, in a sense, the most spectacular and yep. the oddest because Hawke was way ahead of Keating in the polls and ahead of the Liberals in the polls. So some people had sort of formed a judgment that somehow all of that was going to turn to custard. And when it did, then, then, then Paul would be uh, run the campaign with the sort of precision and effectiveness uh, to win it, I suppose to some extent that showed in 1993. But I think Bob would have
1: won that anyway. Being an ally of, of Bob's, uh, he then uh, loses uh, the the title to to Paul Keating. You then became a, a minister, though, for Paul Keating. How did you go oh, yeah, about? Yeah. How did you go with Paul? Uh, uh, did he well, see I, you as uh, as a member of the wrong team to some extent?
2: Uh, well, yeah, Paul carries that, yeah, always. <laughs> but, uh, but that's totally understandable, yeah. But by then, you know, in in those days, the Labor Party used to elect its front bench, so prime ministers were fairly modest in the way in which they handled Mm. people who maybe had opposed them at some at some point of time. And and so you're a person, I I guess, a minister in my own right, not a minister attached to somebody else. Mm. And I ultimately became Paul's deputy Mm. uh, at the end of uh, our period of government. Uh, we should never have lost that election. We we should have been uh,
1: sharper. 96, but you're I talking think, about? Yeah,
2: but I think, frankly, we're just tired.
1: Well, it was a crushing loss, wasn't it, in 96? Oh, and then, massive. But, uh, but you then ascended to uh, leader of the party. That's a, yeah. that's, a, that's a big time to step in.
2: It, it's a hard time to step in because uh, it's a long time before people take any notice of you. Yeah. Even when they object to things that the government is doing... Uh, they still don't necessarily think that the logical way in which you handle that is yes. to throw it out. Yeah. So as opposition leader in those circumstances. But th- there was an advantage actually in having such a small number. I think in the years that we were in opposition, our best period was between 96 and 98. Mm. Um, everybody was in it. There were, nobody, there were no outliers, whether they were on the uh, front bench or back bench. They all were totally committed to the resurrection of our political chances and of our political status. And we were, we'd been a very good government, not just a good government. We had been a very good government. And there was a pride in that. So there was a sense that um, our opponents perhaps weren't as good as we were. And there's still enough left over ministers and, and, and enough new blood. Uh, in our 49 lower mm. house members to make some headway. We made a lot of headway, which was assisted by Howard introducing the goods and services tax. But um, we basically were back as contestable
1: within two years. You um, you said uh, in opposition that you would have repealed that tax, uh, the GST. Would would you have done that? And in, in, in hindsight, would that have been a good idea? No,
2: no, I, I, I didn't say that because by then the whole thing, what I'd said was that we'd roll back elements of it. Right. And um, uh, so uh, you know it'd be off power. There's a few things like that that were about a billion dollars worth that were incorporated Mm. within it, and that was um, pretty important to our relative survival in bad times. At the um, at the at the subsequent election in two thousand and one, which was in the shade of uh, the. uh, the boat people issues, and, of course, even more importantly, the 9-11 terrorist
1: attack. That was a a, a fascinating year as a, as an observer of politics for you, though. That must have been excruciating. You were in such a strong position. Tampa happens, September 11 happens, all of a sudden, and the, the election comes around in November of that year, and uh, and the rest is history. Well, how I remember How it that, re-elected. Yeah. It, it, does, that, does that still, still hurt?
2: uh yeah a bit you know but the uh but you accept these things you know you you're not fully in control of events but i mean it was interesting in the week before tampa uh we in the labor party do these rolling polls so do the liberals you get about 25 marginal seats and you do five or six every couple of months and you just roll through them you know to give yourself a bit of an idea where you were and in malbrus seat in queensland uh, we were at fifty eight percent. In the we'd won an impossible seat earlier in the year in Ryan, and uh, we were tracking to win, but we got hit sideways mm. by those two events. But we were we were minor, really, in the scheme of things globally. I mean, those though the, the uh, in particular nine eleven um, issues have sort of been a dominating factor in global politics mm. ever since mm. and uh, and I think they uh, the American reaction to nine eleven was winded yeah the u s was very winded at the time, and I think that in part um, produced the misjudgments that were on show when they uh, decided to invade Iraq.
1: So Australia's uh, participation in that uh, in that response with our allies to nine eleven, looking back on it now, did we make uh, all the right calls or well, well, some we, wrong calls as well?
2: Well, well, at, at the time we made all the right calls. Yeah. You know, invoking ANZUS, uh, the things that the gov- we were suggesting the government was basically doing, uh, putting in place the necessary legislation to follow terrorist finance, deal with recruiting, all of that sort of stuff, all good. And, and of course, Afghanistan. We're going to Afghanistan. And that the effectiveness of our action in Afghanistan was one of the casualties of the Iraq war. We were actually in a position uh, before the Iraq war of really having the Taliban on the run, uh, of really knocking them out of the system permanently. And the decision to go to war in Iraq stripped the American command a well, broader NATO command in um, in Afghanistan of essential, in particular, special forces people, mm. and it stripped it of focus, and the Taliban made a comeback,
1: as the records will state, <laughs> mm. quite uh, quite substantially so, haven't they? Mm. Um, I want to ask you about uh, back on more local matters uh, after the break because uh, mm-hmm. uh, you, you were in and out of uh, that position as, uh, as leader a little bit uh, in the years uh, mm-hmm. after that. But we need to head to a break. Kim Beasley is my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories. Stay with us here on
0: 882 6BR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Uh, my name is Tim McMillan. My special guest is Kim Beasley. Uh, Kim, uh, 2001, we got a bit sidetracked there with uh, talk about uh, mm-hmm. our, uh, our participation in uh, various conflicts uh, in the Middle East. But uh, 2001, uh, let's say the universe conspired against you there and uh, you didn't manage to win that 2001 uh, election. You then hand the reins over to Simon Crean after mm-hmm. that. W- was that. Was that a difficult process for you?
2: No, not at all. I, I, I thought, you know, two defeats except responsibility. I expected that term um, possibly to be my last in Parliament. I don't believe in leaders <laughs> resigning once they lose. Yep. I think uh, in all the things that's happened to me in politics, the thing that caused me most excitement and satisfaction was the day that I stood in the electoral office in Swan and was declared a Member of Parliament. And that being a Member of Parliament has been, of all the things I've done, Defence and everything else, that's been the thing that, that was most um, satisfying. That's where I wanted to be. That was the great National Sounding Board. But um, so so I went out. Simon uh, struggled mm. and um, he uh, – and, you know, polling and all of that sort of thing and, and I guess – it suggested that uh, perhaps you ought to think about doing something else and the um, so I challenged and failed uh, and and that was that as far as I'm concerned. Mm. but then Simon's supporters turned on and uh, said there ought to be another ballot. I had nothing to do with that. nobody had supported me had anything to do with that. It was all done by by Simon's supporters. And um, and then, it, but when there was a ballot on, I ran, and uh, so did Mark Latham, and um, I lost by two votes. So Mark led us into the two thousand and four election.
1: It staggers me that, uh, that that Mark Latham might have been prime minister.
2: Look, I I think he seemed at the time. I mean, I I must confess that I always had. A few problems with the guy. Can I ask you, I mean, a lot of <laughs> yeah. people now
1: see him as a, as a pretty angry, bitter man with some pretty marginal views now that he's not afraid to express. What was he like back then? Was he as as vociferous back then? He
2: was not so angry and bitter, right. uh, but he was um, idiosyncratic. Uh, he was not very clubbable, um, but that doesn't matter. If you've got uh, got interesting and good ideas... I eventually went onto his front bench and on condition that he get a sensible position on handling both the alliance and on handling Iraq issues at the time. And uh, he agreed. So I said, plus, I want to write you a speech. And if you deliver that speech, I'll um, certainly come on. You know, the last line can be Kim Beasley's joining me on the front bench as shadow defence. He did. I wrote the speech. He's a good writer. He made it better. Mm. Uh, Didn't change the content at all. And he got up and delivered it, and that was it. I was back on the front bench. And he started to trust me a bit because uh, he thought that I had better advice on handling a campaign against John Howard. And he really thought he was going to win. And I used to say the younger bloke always wins. And uh, he he thought that was going to happen. And I remember because he'd ring me up quite often and I'd been going down the east coast and I'd ended up in the western suburbs of Sydney and we'd had fantastic meetings, mm. really large. There was a real buzz uh, about, uh, about the election campaign and I can remember it as clear as day. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting on a bench in a shopping centre in the western suburbs of Sydney and he rings me and he says it was the Thursday before the last week. And he says, uh, "Well, got a week to go. Uh, what's your advice?" And I said, "Well, Mark, two things. First, I think you're winning. I, 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 I haven't seen this feel for a long time. Uh, but I think you do need an answer. Some simple ad while there's still five days of electronic media available to you that answers this interest rate nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to answer and." You know, a punch immediately is effective. And the second thing is, if Howard does not announce anything about Tasmanian forests, don't you announce anything. And he said, on the first thing, he said, no, you're all wrong about that, Kim. Our pollsters tell us the interest rate campaign is having no effect. Okay, you know, you're the leader. And then on the second, of course, I wouldn't be so stupid. Mm. As to make any announcement until Howard does, because unless Howard did. You didn't really need to, mm. you know. The Labor Party was seen as empathetic on those issues anyway. You didn't actually need to come out, and uh, he didn't do that. So he didn't do the advertising. He didn't do the uh, the sensible thing. It cost him in Tasmania, but it cost him even more uh, in Victoria amongst you know re- uh, amongst working class folk who believe you need to. Be respected in your objectives and outlook on life. I think the two things, the failure in one case, the omission and then the commission, actually cost him the poll. He didn't lose
1: mm. very much. No, he was close.
3: Mm.
2: He, he didn't take I, defeat well. <laughs> he, he did he's not, still not taking nah, it well, I the guy, And I, I think it's a shame.
1: Because um, he does seem like he's a, he's a smart guy. It's just perhaps he, he was then. He's, he's, it's a little misdirected. He,
2: it's one of the reasons why he got the job. He'd, he'd written, and a lot of people liked what he'd written. He was then a a, a pretty devoted classic social democrat, mm. and the examples that he used to incorporate in his reading were well and truly within that social democratic tradition. Uh, I think he's never overcome the bitterness of what he thought was an unjustified defeat. Mm. And um and that's he gets a lot of happiness out of his home life but that uh that was uh a miss that he could have taken. He, he, it's not like Kevin Rudd used to talk about forks in the road, you know, and uh for him there was one and he that took was the wrong, wrong fork, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh you step back into uh into a leadership position after that? You yeah. like you like you like the boomerang.
2: Yeah, but I uh, I always understood I didn't have a majority of the caucus. Yeah. Was was it hard to do that again? uh, No, because it was a wonderful opportunity to sit down and do some serious thinking about policy in a transitional time. And we put out excellent policies on the environment, on education, on social benefits, on management of the economy. Uh, They were sort of blueprints. And... um, uh when kevin came beat me and came in um he just picked them up one mm. after the other and, and actually started to move them through in government then made the colossal mistake of you know not having the bottle to proceed with what he wanted to proceed with on on the climate change mm. issues that killed his government actually mm. more than anything else that did it but he didn't actually have it in him as a leader kevin and um but uh, i always knew that there was uh, his takeover was quite possible basically the caucus divided you know forty me thirty julia twenty kevin and the problem was all of julia's votes could go to kevin but if kevin was in the ballot and ran third and his preferences were distributed half of his votes would come to me mm. and i would win so while Julia and Kevin cordially hated each other, I think she realised that her chance to be elevated at least to the deputy's level and then ultimately perhaps to leader and prime minister lay in a bit of self-denial at that point. Mm. Um, and then Jenny Macklin was, was my deputy and she would have beaten Julia. Mm. But she had the view at the time that, well, this is a change. Don't want to hamper um, Kevin's operation by not having the change, and uh, therefore she stepped aside. Very decent woman.
1: Two thousand and seven, you'd step away altogether uh, while this turbulence is just uh, rolling through uh, within the within the Labor Party. Did that make it easier for you to walk away, just uh, seeing this? This seemingly never-ending drama, just no, no, no,
2: not at all. Um, uh, It's the best place to be. And um, I uh, had a um, a a temptation to keep going. I'd been re-endorsed for Mm. Brand Mm -hmm. uh, when I lost the leadership, so I could have won at that election, and I would have stood again. Uh, But um, seeing the way Kevin operated uh, with a high streak of vindictiveness. And the fact that all the best people on his front bench had supported me, people like Wayne Swan, Stephen Smith, Anthony Albanese, and so on, had uh, pretty well the front bench supported me. About half a dozen didn't, but all the rest of them did. I thought, You know, they need to have Kevin's trust. They need to uh, have Kevin not, because he's paranoid about these things. Mm. Uh, they need to... Uh, be able to work in with him, and that means I have to go mm. because if I stay, get re-elected, there'll always be a suspicion that, in his mind, that at some time I'll move on him. And uh, you just can't govern that way. We're going to, I, I, as a laydown was there, we're going to win the election, and the liberals had, had killed themselves with their industrial. It, it, which you
1: can see though, it was that the Kevin 07 campaign was was very effective, wasn't
2: it? Yesish. You know, it, it was a it was as a campaign. A, it was a lay down as there, mate. Yeah. I mean, I I said to the liberals when they introduced that industrial relations legislation, they used to mock me a bit as likely to lose and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, you know, don't worry about me, fellas. Worry about yourselves. This is the longest suicide note anyone's produced. <laughs> I said, you have got to understand this, and the liberals never do. Forty percent of trade unionists vote liberal. Fifty percent of skilled workers vote liberal. 35% of semi-skilled workers vote liberal, 25% of unskilled workers vote liberal. And guess what? You're going to lose 5% in every category and you're gone. Yeah. It's about shaving the margins politics when they say, oh, Donald Trump's base is going to move away from him now, you know, that sort of thing, so, or not move away. He's still sticking solid. Tell him, mate, if 5% of the move, has gone. Mm. It's not about the whole lot.
1: Mm. Well... You walked away in 2007, and uh, then you ventured uh, overseas uh, not long after that. So I want to ask you about uh, your time in the States, because I'm sure that was uh, fascinating. I want to ask you your thoughts on uh, Donald Trump uh, as well. While I've got you here, but we do need to head to a break uh, just for the moment. More with Kim Beasley, my special guest,
0: on this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's Family-Owned Funeral Directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's Family-Owned Funeral Directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Our special guest
1: in this edition is Kim Beasley. Kim, we've just spoken about your time ending as a Federal Member of Parliament. Uh, You've spent a lot of that time since uh, in the US, uh, I suppose most notably as our ambassador. Uh, What's that like? Because you see it on TV shows. It seems like just a a number of of big fancy shindigs.
2: It's it's (laughs) what you make of it. Right. And and uh, if you make it big fancy shindigs, you can do that. I hardly did any. Did a lot of entertaining at home. Yeah. Yeah. Seven or eight of them. Who do you
1: entertain when you're the the, the Australian their ambassador? Their ministers in the US.
2: coming through. Their public servants coming through. Australians or their, their yep. businessmen coming through. Their uh, their politicians coming through. Their Australian artists, performers coming through, and you arrange almost a salon for them when they come in, and you get a develop a stable of China experts, of arts experts, of of uh, American Democrat politics experts, mm. Republican and so on and so on to make sure that they get uh, they get a chance to be exposed to Australian thinking. I also had the view that you actually had to try and run the Australian-American relationship from the uh, embassy. So you do a lot of shaping uh, and I wrote a lot and I uh, wrote comments on other people's writing quite a bit trying to shape that policy. We're in the middle of a, you know, a couple of wars. We, we mm. had lots of things that were happening in relation to Afghanistan. We started up our commitment, the latest phase of Iraq-Syria, and, um, and so the embassy is working hard in that area. And there was trade agreements, there were a whole range of these things that you had to contribute to. It was a really intellectually testing time.
1: I bet. And, and would be an amazing time for many reasons to be there right now, wouldn't it, with Donald Trump around. Um, do you wish you were still there now? Absolute. Just Just to be a part of what so, is just a bizarre time.
2: So jealous of Joe. I, I would love, <laughs> I'd love to have had, say, the last three years of Obama and the first three years of Trump because we've got a lot of responsibilities in this situation. This is not good government in the United States at all. And the focal point of the problem is Trump himself, mm. and he's trashing all the things that have made America great.
1: Because can I ask, you were part of uh, setting up the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, am yeah. I right? Yeah.
2: Well, yes, on the outskirts, mm. the, the negotiators of trade, do which all he's
1: that. kind of walked away from.
2: Yeah, mad, uh, at a, at a, and he knows how foolish he's been now. But I don't think they make their way back in, even though uh, certainly the Republicans in Congress hanker after it. Um. But uh, he is a, a man without knowledge, and he's basically uh, relies enormously on the briefings and his instincts and his past prejudices, and that's not enough. No, he, the president, the commander in chief, commands. The commander in chief is not carried around in a bath chair. I mean, the uh, and and he is not capable of that command.
1: When you were uh, when you came back to uh, to Australia after that, um, what, what did you have uh, left uh, in your list of ambitions?
2: No ambitions, but but too much. <laughs> I mean, I've got myself uh, into I don't know. I totted it up the other day about fourteen or fifteen. Some of them paying, you know, commitments as say yep. uh, board members or you know uh, advocates for and and so on. It's been a. Um, I've not done it quite right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, your daughter, I just want to ask you quickly about your daughter. Yeah. She's, uh, she's shown some interest in a, in a career in politics uh, as well. Um, is, that a, is it a proud moment as a dad seeing your daughter follow in your footsteps? There? Well, she's shown
2: that interest for just about the last 30 years, but the, uh, so it's no news to me. She's actually, though she's not in Parliament, she's a very experienced politician. She's yeah. totally her own woman. Mm. She has different priorities from the sorts of priorities I had. you argue about politics? Not at it? all, really. I'm just impressed, you know, yeah. because she talks about things which I don't think about all that much but which are really quite critical yeah. in the social area, mm. in the economic area. And um, and she is better than me. She is a better speaker and and at least in the policy areas that she's fascinated about, she's thought them through much more uh, intensively than I ever did,
1: given the uh, the pressures and the scrutiny and the and the ridiculous news cycle that politicians now have to live in, uh, would you be encouraging someone of your daughter's age to to pursue that as a career because it does seem brutal and merciless and unforgiving and just relentless
2: i'd always encourage somebody to engage in politics I think actually we've 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 reached a tipping point here. I think the experience of the American polls and the experience of Brexit people have started to re, uh, have started to understand there's a dark side to social media mm. that is invasive of of privacy and dangerous to national security and and I think people are beginning to get a bit of a handle on mm. it not
1: to, not too soon just finally Kim I have to ask you one more time is your next role going to be the the uh, the governor of Western Australia?
2: Yeah, and I'm going to have to tell you those decisions are in, in increase it, totally in the hands of the state government, and uh, so I've got no comment.
1: Well, look, I know you are Bart uh, McGowan's uh, preferred candidate, and uh, he was very complimentary uh, towards you in his uh, victory speech in the last state election. So uh, I would I would imagine you would be the unbackable favourite. But look, thank you very much for a politician's answer right to the end, there, Kim. You've still got it. Thank you very much for coming in and sharing your story with us. It's been lovely to be with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to inspiring stories here on eight eighty two six PR. Everyone has a story to tell, and this one is brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time,
0: as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since eighteen eighty eight.